0: From advisory board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. In the last few weeks, our industry has seen an outpouring of investment and attention in digital health solutions. In fact, you've probably seen the headlines. To make sense of it all, I've brought two guests to radio advisory. You'll remember John League, our resident telehealth expert from one of our earlier episodes, And I've also brought Andrew Rebhan, an expert in digital health intelligence at Advisory Board. Hey, John. Hey, Andrew.
1: Hey, Ray. Hi, Ray.
0: How have you been doing? John, let's start with you, because you came on the podcast one of our first episodes. I think it was our second episode. How has life been since then?
2: Very busy. People seem to be still interested in telehealth all these months later, so very busy. I took my son to college for his freshman year a few weeks ago, so that was certainly um, a big event. So right now, just at home with my other child who's in high school and is doing all virtual learning. Uh So here we are, sort of side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder, working virtually.
0: (laughs) And Andrew, how about you? How are you doing?
1: Honestly, not much changed for me as far as the the COVID impact. I've been working remote for five and a half years at this point, even kind of before my time at advisory. So it hasn't really been a major change. Um, Focusing on digital health, you know, closely tied to what John is doing in the telehealth world. It's been a lot of demand for that. But otherwise, you know, I'm just um, living here in Portland in the midst of all the protests and just dealing with that.
0: Well, let's go ahead and dive in because we've got a big a big topic to talk about today. And it's actually been some news that's been kind of rocking our industry over the last couple of weeks. And that's, of course, the announcement that Teladoc had reached an agreement to buy Livongo. I'm curious, Andrew, why was this actually such big news for the digital health market?
1: I think, honestly, it just brings a sense of legitimacy to the digital health market. I mean, anytime you have an area that is pulling in so much money. If you kind of look at the rock health reports or startup health reports that talk about just the massive funding that's going into the digital health space, you're going to naturally get your share of skeptics who think that there's just basically a flood of untested products out there. And I think that bringing in this, this merger or this acquisition was really about building what is a digital health powerhouse, right? You're combining This established telehealth provider with another established chronic disease management platform. And this is all about looking at that kind of post-COVID environment, right? And this is going to make those smaller scale kind of standalone telehealth vendors shaking their boots, right? Looking at this massive competitor that they're going to have to deal with. And... I think really, apart from the fact that these are two market leaders, it's the fact that they're very young in the public markets. So TeleDoc's only been public since 2015. Livongo's only been public since July of last year. Hmm. So you've got these two young companies that are large leaders, but they're also very successful in the first half of the year, right? It's not every day that a company that's grown by 400% looks to get acquired.
0: And in many ways, these these two companies are very complementary. Like you said, one is a telehealth powerhouse. The other focuses on chronic disease management in a digital way. But I know that you've also mentioned that while this could be, you know, a moment of disruption in our industry, it's actually not all that surprising that these two companies are saying, hey, let's get into each other's lane and move into more of a partnership approach.
1: Right. I think that the acquisition was the surprise. I don't think that the business case was all that surprising. So, we knew back when COVID struck and really took off in February, and March, that digital health, at least a good segment of it, was probably going to take a hit as far as funding and and being um, you know an area of focus for a lot of IT leaders. But there's still these other areas that we knew were going to be fundamental to kind of treating COVID, but the, the post-COVID environment, whether it was virtual visits, remote patient monitoring, um, or more fundamentals around data and analytics and cloud computing and things like that. So the complementary nature of the two companies for me it made perfect sense and especially in the context of covid but there's other factors here you know when we think about the 25 percent overlap between the two companies in terms of their business models that leaves a lot of room for growth but then there's also other factors like lavongo is a u.s centric company Teladoc is global mm. so lavongo is actually looking to expand into international markets with their chronic disease management platform so from a business perspective I don't really see this being something that should catch everyone by surprise, but I do think that the timing of it was what kind of raised some eyebrows.
0: And of course, even just a week later and still now, we're seeing even more deals come on the market. What are some of the other big moves that have happened or the moves that you're tracking that might be coming in the future?
1: Right. So there's essentially two tracks of moves that we've seen. There's the moves that are coming from the sort of pure play digital health firms and then the moves from big tech firms. So just about a week after the announcement of the Teladoc Lavango acquisition, you started to see MD Live announce that they're likely going to launch an IPO next year. And that was something that was very obviously influenced by that other decision.
0: Hmm. Why do you say that?
1: Well, because, I mean, the CEO quite literally said it in an interview <laughs> with Stat News. So um, there there really wasn't a, a debate there, but th- they were likely going to launch an IPO just given the effects of COVID anyway. So this is not necessarily something that was purely based on, on the Teladoc issue. But then you also had Amwell that was also gearing up for an IPO. Now, they were actually a little bit on the fence about about going for the public markets until google decided to invest a hundred million dollars in them that it's going to run concurrent with their ipo but they're also setting themselves up to be the preferred global cloud partner for amwell and if that wasn't enough within you know 24 hours fitbit which is in the process of being acquired by Google, announces this whole new line of wearables and most notably a new smartwatch, which is their Fitbit Sense. So this is essentially a direct approach to competing with the likes of Apple and their kind of dominance in the smartwatch market. And then the the most you know, recent news was that Amazon released their first wearable in their Halo device. So, you know, this is essentially... A flurry of activity that we we anticipated, at least as far as the pure play vendors. I think the big tech vendors, I feel like they've kind of had these products in the works. It's not something that they turned around or, or issued right away. I think Google's investment in Amwell was kind of reactionary in some regards. But, um, you know, you, you're you essentially seeing this consistent unraveling of digital health products from the big tech side.
0: That's right. And you just mentioned five pretty massive deals or announcements that have just happened in the last couple of weeks. And to your point, these aren't just deals that are meant to deal with the immediate effects of COVID. I'm guessing that every single one of these players has a long-term goal in mind for what they see as their role in the future of healthcare. What do you see as the long-term opportunity for some of these companies?
1: I think the long-term opportunity is... Essentially, this focus on home health with wraparound virtual services. I think that COVID caught healthcare providers with their pants down. Um, we saw the effects of, you know, late adoption and being one of those kind of technology laggards that was just woefully unprepared. And I think that, you know, when you when you're looking in the market for reputable solutions, you're going to look at. Who has a a broad platform that can be, you know, scalable, that could be standardized, that could help us with our cost savings. And I think that big tech vendors are feeling like they're going to be that source of of IT platform dominance, but they're also capable of reaching consumers in the home. And I think that, you know, from the pure play side Levongo, Teladoc, that's certainly a great start for, for that market. Um, that's not a big tech vendor that can provide that combined end-to-end platform. And I think that they have the scale that they're going to be able to acquire other bolt-on point solutions down the line. But I think that overall, when you look at, for example, how Google was able to throw money at Amwell while working on its wearable line through Fitbit, they're essentially going down the same route as what TeleDoc and Livongo did in their approach to home health. They're just doing it in a more deconstructed way.
0: Hmm. John, what do you think?
1: I also think that beyond any
2: sort of specific long-term objective or maybe even just perspective that a lot of these players have on how they will participate in the market, it is. Become obvious across the past several months, to Andrew's point, that digital solutions are legitimate. Hmm. There is demand for them. They can be used. They can be used very flexibly in a lot of different ways. And even beyond any sort of short term or, you know, sort of bigger picture objective, I think a lot of these companies who have money to invest are looking to sort of establish a beachhead. Let's Let's get ourselves into this system. Let's pick up relationships with strong players, people with strong technologies. Let's advance our own platforms with regard to Fitbit and, and Amazon's work uh, on the Halo and stuff like that, and make sure that we are ready as this begins to evolve. Let's go ahead and try to to elbow our way in at the table in a more... Overt way than maybe we have been in the past,
0: mhm mm-hmm. and I think the moves that we've been talking about so far really show just how resilient the digital health landscape has been during a moment that's honestly incredibly unstable for providers in the same space. In fact, i as we're talking about digital health and disruption and virtual care. I have to admit that I'm not sure that our providers who are listening to this podcast are necessarily telling the same story. I know, John, it's been a few months since I've had you on to talk about that provider reaction to telehealth. Back in April, we were talking about this explosion of telehealth utilization. What's actually happened since then?
2: So when we talked in April, we were in a situation where many providers and practices were doing 70%, 80%, 90% of their visits virtually. And since then, that has really pulled back to maybe as low as 10% to to Mm -hmm. 30% um, is the usual range. I don't actually find that especially surprising, truth be told. It's very easy to overestimate how little telehealth we were doing as an industry, as a whole, before COVID, you know, the best data that we have on claims and utilization suggests that maybe about one out of a thousand healthcare services was being delivered virtually. Wow. That number is is pretty stark, but what it means for the individual providers is that for most of them, no part of their practice, no part of their training, no part of their workflow was set up to be done virtually, if you think about things like conducting the visit, taking vitals, even simple things like communicating with the rest of your of your care team in clinic, if you're doing that virtually, that's a completely different animal than if you can just walk down the hall and talk to the MA. I think that naturally then providers have retreated to what's familiar.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And every single I should say beyond healthcare, every single part of the US economy has had to try to figure out how to pivot towards a more virtual experience. We ourselves are recording this podcast over a virtual platform when we could have just gone into the office and recorded it in person, like our kind of traditional ways. So we sort of always knew that after we hit that peak of volume at the start of the stay-at-home orders, that we weren't actually going to stay there that long, right? Especially when we think about the regulatory burdens that came down. I'm not hearing any more about physicians FaceTiming their patients. But I'm curious from both your perspectives, how much of that backslide should happen versus at what point do we get into dangerous territory?
2: From a should perspective, The not very helpful answer is it depends.
0: You're right. That is not helpful.
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. It depends on your specialties, right? Whatever you've got in your practice. It depends on your patient mix, both how receptive are they to that, to are they able to use the telehealth technologies? Are they digitally literate? Do they have the access to the technology? Do they have access to broadband? Things like that. I also think, again, you know, let's not ignore the elephant in the room. It depends on your reimbursement model. This is a lot easier to do if you've got a value-based model or you're working in some sort of bundled payment kind of setup where a lot of the upstream and downstream interactions can be done virtually. So a lot of that has to has to be based on what you do in your practice.
0: And since it depends, I think that your team actually built something to help folks actually make an estimate or at least forecast the virtual shift themselves. Is that right?
2: Sure. Uh, We built an Excel-based tool called the Virtual Shift Estimator that's based on CDC survey data of procedures done in ambulatory settings. You can use it down to the service line level to see what proportion of visits could be virtualized based on the kind of care being delivered. I think that's the important thing to figure out. As sort of a baseline. Let's see what could be done before we start setting goals. I could give you an overall sort of national number. We have that number from the modeling. It's 26% of ambulatory visits could be virtual. But my next sentence is going to be that for your organization, you should completely ignore that number (laughs) and go to the shift estimator and build your own based on your own mix of specialties and then layer that with information about your patient population and and what your physicians are able to do.
0: You're also out there having conversations with healthcare leaders and frontline providers every day. So I'm curious, from your perspective, do you have a sense of what red flags or signals would show that, hmm, maybe this is an organization that isn't thinking productively about telehealth and instead is maybe backsliding to what we would have considered status quo six months ago? <laughs>
2: I think there are so many opportunities to use telehealth especially for routine care that if you are encountering providers who simply are not offering that option to their patients, I think that is a is a number one red flag. Are we are we availing ourselves of the opportunity to respect a patient's time as they receive their care? Are we taking a thoughtful approach to who we actually need to see in clinic and who we don't, based on what's clinically practicable, what's clinically relevant, and also the factors about the patient. Are they at risk? Do they have uh, mobility challenges? Things like that. I think those are the things that we need to think about. There's not really a number we don't have a lot, of, a lot of good data yet on overall utilization. I would say that the flip side of that question is probably the thing that we see that is the bigger issue. And what I mean by that is, if you're trying to look at organizations who are taking a thoughtful, considered approach to telehealth, one of the things that you want to look out for is a goal that's too ambitious or a goal that isn't Rooted in reality, we mm-hmm. hear a lot from organizations about who say, yeah our c m o wants us to do fifty percent of all of our ambulatory visits virtually now. Well, where did that number come from?
0: Mhm,
2: They just sort of pulled it out of thin air as as like well, that would be really cool, or well, you know, during covid lockdown, we were doing seventy five percent so you know if we just back a third off of that, we'll get to fifty. Isn't that a reasonable goal? It could be. But how do you know? Um, That's one of the reasons we we created the Virtual Shift Estimator. It's a blunt tool, but you've got to start somewhere. You can do this with your own data. You can do this with our data. But please, use some data. Look at (laughs) what you're doing and build your estimate of what you want to be doing from the bottom up rather than from the top
1: down.
0: Andrew, what red flags are you hearing?
1: I think when I look at this kind of approach of of how far is telehealth going to go up or down. I I really just look at it from the perspective of human nature and cultural factors here. I mean, there's the fact that there's probably a lot of clinicians out there who didn't really embrace telehealth to begin with and they look at COVID as a very special case that is temporary uh, in their minds at least. So if, you know, you're coming out of COVID, Like it's a bad hangover and you're just trying to figure out what went wrong over the last six months. But there's a lot of folks out there on the front lines who are going to be itching to just go back to the way things were. And that includes just seeing patients face-to-face, still stuck in their fee-for-service environments, just not really embracing telehealth unless they're getting paid for it appropriately. And I think that's really just going to be the, the reality for, for a significant number of, of systems. And I think that what John said makes sense. Just look at the data, because if you can really tr- truly show data that makes the case for this, it's going to be a lot harder to kind of just revert back to the way things were.
0: Honest moment, Andrew, I don't think it's just the frontline clinicians who might be saying, gosh, I just want to wake up from this COVID hangover and go back to delivering in-person patient care. I think my fear is that leaders are feeling that same way, that executives that are leading hospital systems, that are leading physician groups, that are leading health systems are not thinking in this data-driven way about how to use this moment to really build a different and kind means of delivering care than what we had last year or 10 years ago or centuries ago. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break.
1: Looking for more ways to connect with Ray and our other experts? To stay up to date on the biggest news and issues in healthcare today, follow advisory board on social media there you'll find resources for your team our experts latest blog posts and information about upcoming special events on twitter we're at advisory bd and we're on facebook and linkedin too just search for advisory board
0: This all speaks to the broader sense that I have that those on the provider side are really thinking very narrowly about digital care and about telehealth, right? They're still thinking about that classic synchronous video visit. But John, I'm curious, what do these bigger industry moves say about the broader goal of bringing care closer to the home?
2: I think it goes back to something that Megan Zweig said on an earlier episode of of the podcast, Ray, where she was talking about the difference between digital substitution and digital transformation. So many providers are focused almost exclusively on substituting an in-person doctor-patient visit with a virtual version of the exact same thing. That is valuable. That is certainly a very important mode of telehealth, but it completely ignores the possibilities that exist when you look beyond just the synchronous video visit. It ignores asynchronous modalities in all of their forms. It ignores all of the advantages that we could get from remote patient monitoring. It also tends to ignore the importance that provider-to-provider consults can have. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things that has always been working sort of in the background of telehealth and is one of the big opportunities to make a real dent in a lot of the access problems that people complain about, rightly so, with telehealth. I think that's one of the things that that we can, we can really leverage um, to make telehealth valuable to all of our patients. But we can't do that if we're only focused on a virtual video visit.
0: That's right. That's right. Andrew, what do you think?
1: I think this discussion about You know, healthcare in the home, it's still very aspirational for a lot of folks. And I think that whether you're talking about clinicians in the health system or patients themselves, I just don't feel like we're quite there yet, even if it is kind of the ultimate goal. But I do think that there is this middle ground of getting care out of the health system and into the community that is essentially kind of filling in that buffer space in between the the health system and the home. And when I think of digital disruption, I'm thinking of service models that are coming primarily from retail environments, right? You think about the influence of CVS, of Walgreens with their recent investment in VillageMD, the growth of Walmart health centers, I mean, these are large you know, established environments that are, that are spread all over the country that provide those easy means of access for a lot of folks. And, and not to mention just price transparency, much more direct primary care services that they might not receive in a traditional doctor visit. And so I feel like that's kind of a transitional stage to getting care in the actual home.
0: So let's talk about what providers could actually be doing next, or what they should be doing in response to all of this disruption. How can a provider organization actually compete with a Google or an Amazon, or I'm just going to say it, Teledongo, in this space, or even should they be?
1: I think I actually, that the uh, oh, John, sorry, go ahead, no, you kidding. first. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a lot of healthcare stakeholders need to come to terms with their core competencies. They need to have a moment where they understand what they're good at and they need to drop the rest right the under the ability to know that you're not going to be Amazon or you're not going to be Google is a very healthy perspective to have when there's so much digital disruption going on around you because you don't want to become so ambitious that you you know essentially throw money into a hole and so i think that that is the first step, but that's not to say that healthcare providers don't have their advantages. Obviously, they have embedded relationships with with physicians and other clinicians. They have their relationships with their existing patients, but they also have, of course, just the gold mine of clinical data that they work with, the firsthand knowledge of care delivery and workflows. And this is essentially the pilot environment that all of these digital health firms are trying to test all their solutions in anyway. right? So a healthcare system could certainly leverage these advantages um, where appropriate to partner up with digital health firms or big tech companies. But I think that trying to compete with them head on, unless you're a very innovative, large scale, heavily resourced health system, I think it's unrealistic. I agree completely. I think competition is the
2: wrong way to frame these relationships. Look at Lavongo, focused on chronic condition management. There are plenty of unmanaged or undermanaged patients out there. Just because Livongo is, is getting patients in your market, that doesn't mean there are not folks out there for you to be serving. There's no lack of opportunity, certainly. I think the better way to think about this than competition is what can we learn from these players, both from the perspective of how do we get the same kind of lower cost outcomes that a lot of these folks are getting, but also taking their approach as what problem of care delivery can telehealth solve rather than looking at telehealth as a problem to be solved?
0: hmm. Yeah. We talked about this in the last podcast, that it's not about what should my telehealth strategy be? It's how does telehealth fit into my existing strategy or solve the existing challenges I already have?
1: And one other thing about this is that I, that I kind of left out as far as a healthcare provider and how they might adjust here is they should be looking to leverage some of their existing vendor relationships anyway, right? I mean, this is essentially going to be focused around the EHR in most instances. So I have this EHR that I invested a ton of money in, and it has the capabilities to be modified and customized. And we can build out these third-party APIs where appropriate to kind of expand our solution set. And so if you already have that existing vendor relationship, why not try to leverage that in, in in this kind of expanding set of digital health capabilities.
0: So then if competition is maybe the wrong way to frame this, I'm curious, in your opinion, I mean, how worried should providers actually be as they hear more and more announcements like the ones we've talked about?
1: I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I mean, again, COVID is a very special case in a lot of ways. I think that there is the unfortunate reality that because digital health funding expanded so quickly and there's so much hype in the space, the market has been flooded with a lot of unproven, untested solutions from companies that are both the kind of large legacy vendors who are making these very just quick business pivots to startups that nobody's ever heard of and, and they're just not sure what they can do. And so I think that there is Unfortunately, a little bit of a wait and see approach as the market kind of filters out some of these solutions that are not scalable, that don't really have a very clear ROI, and so there is a sense here of not necessarily being the the first mover in all cases.
0: John, what do you think? I think the
2: bigger issue is when we start to look at these organizations that are expanding vertically and changing from point solutions to solve a specific care delivery problem, to develop more integrated services that extend across the care continuum and parallel the kind of care coordination functions that health systems and medical groups have tended to think was their domain I'm not sure that worry is the right question, but I would certainly be watchful, again, going back to what can we learn from these folks, but also what do we see about how payers are responding to those alternative channels? What is the uptake among consumers? What sort of testing and data do we have on the efficacy of those things? That's where I think the rubber meets the road. And we continue to see more and more research, quality research being done across a host of telehealth modalities. I think that's the thing that we really want to be aware of as we think about, are we prepared for delivering care in the future?
0: Well, Andrew, John, I want to thank you both for coming on Radio Advisory. I've got one final question to ask you. John, you'll remember this from the last time you were on. What's the one piece of advice that you have for our listeners this week?
1: Look, I think that during periods of uncertainty, risk-averse organizations are always going to be a little hesitant to make big strategic moves. But Digital disruption does require that constant state of vigilance and and the ability to adapt to changing environments, right? So if you're always in that mode of being able to make you know, continuous changes for the next stages of care delivery, that's what's going to separate the innovators from the laggards. And I think that's where we saw Teladoc, Livongo, big tech companies, they're experiencing success in the first half of the year, but still keeping an agile mindset to make bold moves to stay ahead of the competition. And I think that you know, from a business perspective, they're looking longer term to see how to build out a more coordinated ecosystem model. And I think that's really what kind of gave them an edge. And I think that that's what's going to continue to give them an edge, you know, as we sort of get out of this crazy COVID mess that's occurred this year. But it it, it hasn't really fundamentally altered the importance of the digital health landscape.
0: John, how about you?
2: I think now that we are beyond the frantic mode of getting telehealth and digital health solutions in place to address the challenges that were immediately in front of us as COVID emerged, the emphasis now needs to be less on how do we make this workflow happen? How do we get connected to the patient? And more about how do we use these tools to deliver better care in a more efficient way? How do we make our clinicians and our patients' experiences of delivering and receiving care something that is manageable, dare I say, even delightful in how we interact and the ease with which we're able to connect the endpoints of all of those interactions.
0: Great. Thank you both. Thank you. It can be easy to feel distracted by the headlines or feel like it's impossible to compete with the Googles and the Amazons of the world. But there are things that every institution can do. John said it. Understand your market, what's coming, and what to do next. Learn from these players and make purposeful decisions, armed with the right data, to actually bring care closer to where patients are. Because ultimately, that's what we're looking for. And as always, we're here to help.
1: Well, you always you're always talking about how great Ohio is, and, that, and <laughs> all our guests. I don't know why how it is, but they all seem to come from Ohio. So, like, yeah, I've I'm never a Portland been. Person, I've got to clutch yeah. on hands. <laughs> <laughs> Ohio just has a
0: special place in my heart. I would rather be living in Portland, though.